there. This is Abby at Recovery Radio, and I'm going to share a simple secret that will make you smile all day. Just go to www.recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. The larger the amount you donate, the bigger your smile will be. Feel the power of recovery for yourself and become part of the solution. Go to recoveryradio.net right now and start your day with a smile. Hi, everybody. I'm Pauline. I'm a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen, and I am so grateful and nervous to be here today at the Fellowship Hall Conference. And a special thanks to Bill and Kay. I know you two had a hand in my being here today. And thanks to Chris and the council for the invitation. And Donna and her husband, Chuck, have been fabulous hosts and hostesses. So thank you so much for, uh, for the invitation and the privilege. It always is a privilege to get to talk at a conference and to Fellowship Hall who recognizes alcoholism as a family disease and um, that it does impact those of us who love an alcoholic like me. So what I'm charged to do is to tell you a little bit about me, what it was like and what life is like today. So I will tell you just uh, some facts that are true. I do have a home group. That is the New Beginnings group that meets on Wednesday nights at 730 in Lakeside Park, Kentucky. It's my home group. I do service work there. I also have four foster, or excuse me, three foster home groups. I go to meetings on Monday, Sunday, and Friday night as well, and I do service work in all of them. Not because I'm required to give service work to Al-Anon. It's because I want to. This organization, Al-Anon, has given me my life back. Um, I believe it is because of it that I've remained married to the alcoholic in my life. And so uh, I also know me. I know that I am just one quick thought. We heard about crazy thinking last night and crazy thinking this morning. I do that crazy thinking without any substance in my body at all. <laughs> and so I need a lot of help. In the Al-Anon welcome, we have a sentence in there that talks about our thinking being distorted. I can assure you that my thinking is really distorted. And if you need verification of that, check with my other half after the meeting. He will fill you in on all the details that I leave out today. So um, uh, you did hear that I was 6'1", so I'm really 6'1 and a quarter. I like to remember that. So I'm a little bit taller than my husband, so that really does make me his higher power. <laughs> And I never let him forget it. Every once in a while, you know, I just have to raise myself up and just look right over his head and let him know what's what's going on. So um, I grew up in a family with no alcoholism, none that I'm aware of, uh, went to um, um, Catholic schools. And I recognized some things early on in my life that were a forerunner of trends that would come along later. And that was, I like to be in charge. Oh, yeah, I like to be in charge. So being the tallest girl in grade school, from the fifth grade on, I was with all girls. So every year when it came time for the nativity story, guess who got to be Joseph? Me. <laughs> and I can tell you, I was so used to the story. At the end, I was like, come on, Mary. I know where we need to go. I've already got the hotel room booked. You just need to do exactly what I'm telling you and everything will be okay. 
So I felt like I was large and in charge, even as a young kid. So fast forward to 1978, and my dad has a heart attack. My mom, you know, we all rushed to the hospital, and my mom wanted some time by herself. So a girlfriend called up, and she said, let's go to a little neighborhood bar and just have a glass of wine and, you know, let you kind of, uh, not detox, but kind of calm down after the excitement of the day. And we walked into the little bar, and there standing at the bar was a blonde with his little shirt sleeves rolled up and his blue jean vest on. And I walked my 6'1 self up to there to the bar, and he looked up at me. And uh, he said, don't I know you from somewhere? And I remember thinking, that is the oldest line in the books. But then he told me the story. He lived in a duplex earlier, much earlier in life. He had lived in a duplex apartment on the first floor, and my sister and her roommate had lived on the second floor. This bartender had remembered me from when I was 16. I was in love. (laughs) So we started dating. Now, I noticed a trend when we dated. A lot of our early dating involved watching him be a bartender and me playing pinball. I'm pretty good at pinball. And uh, he'd get off at 2.30, and around 2 o'clock, he'd start throwing the booze back. And then at 2.30, we'd go out for breakfast. And it was only at that time when we had those conversations in the bar or afterwards in the restaurant that he would open his heart to me and share his innermost secrets I actually had a name for it. I called it Blue Talk because it only happened in the dark blue of the night. And for the next, gosh, 14, 16 years, I did my best to recreate that without him drinking. So uh, we dated for a while and we decided to, uh, he popped the question, and we went home and we told my mom and dad that we were going to get married. Well, my mom did not like him. Wrong religion, divorced, just did not like him. And she told me that the marriage would only be blessed if my maternal grandmother would bless this marriage. So off we go to maternal grandma, and we sit down and we have a conversation. And Mike tells her that, um, uh, he, you know, we're going to get married. And uh, grandma looks at Mike, and he sa- she says to him, well, do you love her? And Mike said, yes, I do. Good answer, by the way, honey. And she looked at me and she said, well, do you love him? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, well, then there's going to be a marriage. And I said, ah, 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 before that happens, call the woman at 4312954 and tell her there's going to be a wedding. So she called my mom and paved the way and we got married and we moved to his folks farm. Now, I grew up in an urban area of northern Kentucky. I had seen cows in television shows, but had never experienced the farm life. And um, if you've ever seen, and and I know Ken talked about uh, Andy Griffith's show, if you've ever seen Green Acres, I'm the blonde in Green Acres. Move me to the farm. I'll never forget the first time I turned on the stove and there was no gas. It wouldn't light up. And I'm like, what's wrong with this? There's, you know, stove turn the knob, there should be gas. And he said, oh, you have to change tanks. 
I'm like, change tanks. What's that? So I was really a definite Green Acres person. But we lived on the farm and I noticed a trend early on. He was staying out really late, still drinking. And I didn't like that. You see, I had an agenda. This weekend's theme is changing lives. I was determined to change his because I thought I knew best. I knew how he needed to dress, who he needed to associate with socially, what he needed to say at parties, uh, what he needed to smoke or not smoke. He needed to drink decaf coffee, not real coffee. I had a whole alphabetical or numerical list or chronological list, however you wanted to get it. I had a whole list of things or behaviors that I wanted him to exhibit, and he was just a work in progress in my book. And so all, all I needed to do was find just the right words to tune him up, change him over, funnel him down a different path, channel him in the right direction, and he would do what I suggested he do, or so I thought. I didn't know that what I was dealing with was the family disease of alcoholism. I didn't recognize it at all. But what I did know is that I was beginning to get very angry about what was going on in our home. We spent a couple years at the farm, and then we moved to the suburban house, and we were going to bought a, had a big house in the suburbs. We were going to have children, white picket fence, the life. Well, that wasn't meant to be. He continued to drink, and I began to get angrier and angrier and angrier. So I'd like to tell you what a typical night was in my world. So typically, um, the other half would call about 6 o'clock, 6.30, and he'd call and he'd say, Honey, I have a business meeting. I learned that that was code for I'm going to stay out drinking. But he'd say he had a business drinking our business meeting, and ha-ha, Freudian slip there. And he would be home at 6.30, maybe 7. Well, I'd watch the clock, and at 6.30, maybe 7, I'd call the bar. And I'd hear the bartender answer the phone, and I'd say, hey, can you tell me if Mike is there? And I'd hear that bartender muffle the phone, and he'd call to Mike, and he'd say, hey, Mike, it's you-know-who, are you here? And I'd hear the muffled voice go, no. And the bartender would say, no, he's not here. Click. Well, game on. <laughs> so what I would do was sit at the house and, you know, where he was out tying one on with a bottle. I was home tying one on without a bottle. One of my favorite character defects is obsession. I like to tie on a good obsession. And when I'm not spiritually fit, pretty much anything that crosses my path becomes an obsession for me to pick up. And when he wouldn't return home at the prescribed time that he had said, the obsession got flamed. And so I'd walk around the house just building up a good head of anger. And then I'd lay down in bed because at 11 o'clock, everybody's supposed to be sleeping in my world. And every time a car would go down the street, I'd hop up out of bed, pop open those blinds, see that it wasn't him, 
walk around the house some more and get mad some more. So long around three o'clock in the morning and by now I've got twelve, one, two, four hours vested in tying one on. He came home. So, of course, what I do, I, I tell you, it was an Oscar winning performance. I'd lay down in bed, pretend like I was sleeping, eyes closed. He'd lay down in bed next to me. And then the show would begin. <laughs> the Wicked Witch of the West would leap up out of bed. And I'd look at him and I'd say, you said you'd be home at 6.30, maybe 7. Where were you? Why was that a business me- oh, Liar. How many drinks did you have? Two. Liar. Were there any women there? No. Liar. I'm the one who picked the fight at 2.30 in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning. And I, had t- I was mad. And boy, you know, I don't know about you, but when I have a lot of anger in me, Someone is going to get the brunt of it, and it was him. So I yell and scream and use, if you're a person that likes to cuss, and I'm a person that likes to cuss, just use your imagination at this point. I called him everything but a person. And then I'd grab my pillow, and I'd march to the bedroom door, and I'd say, I'm not sleeping with you. And I'd stomp down the steps. Make up my bed in the living room on the couch, throwing things all around, knowing for sure that my husband would appear at the top of the steps. And I'd hear his voice and he'd say, Pauline, love of my life, desire of my existence. The evil alcohol will never cross my lips again. Please come to bed with me. That never happened. So in my head, it was supposed to. And when he didn't appear, ding, 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 round two is about to start. I'd stomp up the steps. And by now, my alcoholic husband is doing what every good alcoholic husband is doing at this point. He is snoring and farting at the same time. I would walk over to him and start yelling again. And I felt self-righteous and I felt perfectly justified in every behavior. There was no shame in me about it at all. I thought he was the problem. He was the ruin of my life. And boy, he was going to listen to me. And that would go on for two or three hours. Me stomping and leaving, restarting the fight, stomping out, coming back in. And he was a bar drinker, so three or four nights a week, that was life at our house. But yet, if you saw me in public and said, how are you, Pauline? Guess what I said? Fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, thank you, I'm fine. Everything's fine, Mikey's fine, he's fine, everything's fine. Now, I like to tell you that he was the only one that got to feel my love. But if you're a person like me, everyone that crosses my path becomes a topic of interest. And so if I go to the grocery store and there'd be a 
aisle that said 12 items or less. I'm the person that counts the items in your cart. (laughs) And if you have more than 12, because I am so tall, I can point the sign out to you. (laughs) And I can help you count the items in your cart as well. All the while letting you know just how stupid you are. And feel perfectly justified in that behavior. I'm the person who rides with you on a bus. And if you leave your newspaper on the bus when you get off, (laughs) I will get off before my stop with your newspaper and bring it to you and say, you left the newspaper on the bus. And you'll say, oh, it's trash. I'm finished with it. (laughs) Wrong answer. (laughs) My response to that is, well, if it was trash, it would have been really nice if you had carried it off the bus and used the receptacle right here. And don't check in line in front of me either. I'm the person who will come up and confront you about that as well. And all of that is without the grace of Al-Anon. And all of that did not bother me to do at all. I felt like that was the way to live. So I confronted Mike while he was drinking that he was never home, long into the 14 years that that went on. And Mike made a mistake one night that um, he probably shouldn't have said. I said, you know, you are never home in the midst of one of our 2.30 in the morning arguments. You are never home, finger out. You're never home. You're always out drinking at these business meetings. And I know what you're really doing. And he said, prove it. Now, if you're a person who knows someone pre-Al-Anon, do not say the word prove it. I got a blank calendar that has the squares in it. And I got three or four different colored pens. Data is truly critical to a presentation. (laughs) I would mark what time he called in one color, a second and third color to indicate the second and third times that we talked on the phone, and then a fourth color to indicate what time he actually crossed the threshold. Oh, if I had only had PowerPoint and Excel at those times, (laughs) I could have done pie charts and graphs. To show the evidence. So I waited 30 days and collected data. And then I I read in Good Housekeeping that what you're supposed to do is make an appointment with someone over an important topic. So I made an appointment with my husband to do my presentation. And I sat him down on the couch and I said, now, remember, sweetie, about a month ago, um, you know, we had a bit of an argument over you're not being here. And you suggested that I prove it. Well, I've done just that. Here's the 30 days. We went through all 30 days showing him. I thought for sure that that evidence would be it. And he would say, Pauline, love of my life, desire of my existence. You're right. The evil alcohol will never cross my lips again. That didn't happen. His response to my presentation was, whatever. (laughs) Not the answer that I wanted. I'm also the person when you're driving, don't get in my way. 
there was a sign that said, stop, no right turn on red. I'm sitting in the car, listening to my music, singing out loud, very loudly, as I like to do. Guy behind me starts hitting on the horn, giving me the signal, like, go right, young woman, go right. <laughs> I'm thinking, buddy, you don't know how to read that sign. I put that car in park. I got out and I went and framed that sign like Vanna does her letters on Wheel of Fortune. And then I gave him the look. Those of you who are in Al-Anon, you know that pre-Al-Anon look that says you're stupid without having to say a word. And I waited till he read the sign. And then I got back in the car and turned up my music and continued on my merry way. That's just me. In February one year, he decided to go out drinking. It was very cold at home. At that time, I had hair down to my waist. He didn't come home, and I had, uh, I had tied on a good anger. I was really ticked. And I thought, you know what? I've had it. I'm going to go to the bar and get him. So I get out, bed hair, so it's way, way, way out here. I put on my red jute robe, and if you're a pre-Alanon like me, of course you like to suffer a lot, so you don't have the red robe that looks nice. All the velour was gone, the belt was gone, and I tied it with a piece of jute. I put on my blue summer flip-flops and my dark sunglasses so that no one would see me. I drove to the bar, circled it a few times, planning what I'm going to say, figuring out how to go in, stop the car. Anger's built up. I'm feeling self-justified and righteous. I'm going in, and this bar had doors like a western saloon. I charged in those doors, and I stopped. Whole bar stopped, too. Everybody looked around, and I'm thinking, yeah, boys and girls, there's a new sheriff in town. (laughs) Everybody stops what they're doing, but one blonde up at the bar, smoking a cigarette, nursing a beer. My husband. I walked up to the bar, knowing no one was seeing me at all. I walked up to the bar, and I looked down at him, and I said, If you don't leave now, I'm going to cause a scene. (laughs) Not knowing that I'd done so already, and everyone was scared to death of the wicked witch that had just walked in, but it did work. He toddled out of the bar behind me. So I was a hot mess at home. Hating him and loving him at the same time. Completely filled with shame. Completely filled with guilt. Completely filled with, to the rest of the world, denial about what was going on behind closed doors. I wouldn't tell anyone what was going on because I was filled with such shame. And that's what the family disease of alcoholism did to me. Filled me with such shame that I just stuffed it all in. I stuffed everything in and I prided myself on never showing emotion. It didn't make a difference to me whether you told me your mother passed away or you won a million dollars. You got the same response all the time. Because I knew if I started crying, I'd never stop. I knew if I let the anger out to someone else, they'd go Whoa, 
What kind of person is that? What is going on in their house? And so I bottled it all up. Now, one of my favorite phrases to Michael, long about three o'clock in the morning, was to get up in his face. And almost every night I'd say, you know, I don't have to put up with this crap from you, except I cussed a lot more. And I'd use that over and over and over. But it wasn't until 1992 that something different happened. In the midst of all that alcoholic drama, we lost our home. We lost our cars. We lost the money, lost jobs, process servers coming to the house, couldn't answer the phone because of the collection agencies. I spent a lot of time in tears sitting on in the living room. We were hardly talking at all. We moved to where we are now in Newport. He was still going out drinking. I spent $20 and bought a black dress. Because what I wanted was for him to die. That's what I wanted. That's what I thought was the solution to my dilemma. I wanted him to have a wreck on our circle freeway. I didn't want anybody to get killed. But I wanted him to die. So that I could wear the black dress, collect the insurance money. And at the funeral home, I had it planned out how I would look. The tears would fall softly along my cheek. I'd sniffle occasionally. I'd grab my tissue to let you know that I really felt awful about his being gone. And inside I was going, woo-hoo. <laughs> that is what the family disease of alcoholism did to me. Yet I told you, I loved him. Where does that fit in? That's sad and scary. So uh, one of the other things that I always said to Mike was um, I have EAP at work. He could go and do whatever you need to do, but something has to happen. And in uh, fall of 1992, he went out drinking one night and I started my Usual, picked up the obsession du jour, started wandering around the house, tying a bit of anger on. And I laid down at 11 o'clock, and I believe for me, a higher power intervened in my life. I, would, I didn't know it then. But the words that I had said to him over and over and over finally made it from my head to my heart. Pauline. You do not have to put up with this anymore. I fell asleep. There was no drama when he came home. There was no big argument. I waited a couple of days, scheduled an appointment with him. And I sat down and I said, sweetheart, I love you. However, I can't live this way anymore. I don't know what has to change. I don't know. But something's, something's got to change or I'm leaving. And I let it sit. And I went to work for two weeks. And I came home one day, and he was sitting on the deck, and he said, do you have that number for EAP? Of course, being a good pre-Al-Anon, you're always prepared. I casually whipped it out. 
gave him the card and he called and he went for his alcohol assessment. He went to the doctor and the doctor gave him some sort of test. I didn't even know there was such a thing. And he came home and he was almost like a six year old with refrigerator art that they had made in, in first grade. He's holding up his certificate announcing that his doctor had told him he was alcoholic. Now, you would have thought I would have been thrilled. Instead, I got sarcastic. I looked at him and I said, I have been telling you for the past 14 years that you are a fill in the blank drunk. And now you go listen to some other doctor whom we don't know tell you you're an alcoholic and I'm supposed to be excited about this. Ha! I think not. But go off and do whatever you need to do to take care of you. We'll see how this goes. Loving and supportive wife I am. And he came home from that that family there or the hospital group and he said, um, you have to go to Pauline. Well, the bobble-headed side of me comes out and I'm like, uh, no, I don't. You got us into this. You'll get us out. And it's your problem. You're the one who did this, not me. Ha <laughs> ha, go on about your business. And then I had a moment of revelation. I thought, Lord, if I get asked to be on the Oprah show to talk about this someday, I'll want to be able to look at Oprah and say, yes, I did everything that I could to help him. I was loving and supportive and kind, and I don't know what happened. So I said, okay, I'll go to your family group. And that was just the attitude I had when I walked in. I didn't like any of them. They were older, they were younger, they were colors, they were all different ethnicities, different socioeconomic. I didn't like them one bit, and I just sat down in the room, and I thought, this is not going to go well. And then they started sharing. And I believe for me what happened that night is a second intervention by my higher power. Because I was blessed with ears to listen for the similarities, not the differences. And in those similarities, I learned the language of the heart that night. And I related. And we got in the car and we drove home and I was crying uncontrollably. I I couldn't even form words. I was crying so hard. And Mike patted my, my leg and he said, honey, are you okay?" And I looked at him and I said, sweetheart, I didn't know until tonight how crazy I had become. I had no clue that what I had turned into was not what it had to be. That's just the way I learned to survive with the family disease of alcoholism. And that hospital group said, we're going to give you lots of information. However, what you need to do to learn about the family disease is go to Al-Anon. Well, the bobbleheaded came back out. (laughs) I didn't want to do that. (laughs) So I walked into an Al-Anon meeting on a Tuesday night and got ticked off as soon as I walked in the door. 
they were laughing before the meeting started. They were laughing. And that totally, I was so mad that they were laughing. However, the other side of me so wanted to laugh like that again. I hadn't had a good belly laugh in years. Where I got my kicks was being sarcastic, putting the knife in slowly and turning and thinking, ha, 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 got you tonight. Ha, 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 you're not going to get me down. Ha, ha, ha. And that's just the way I lived. I wanted what they had. And I sat in the meeting and I thought, well, this will be fun. I'm going to get to tell them all the things he's done to me. Well, they didn't talk about the alcoholic in the meeting. That ticked me off. I wanted somebody to know how big my boo-boo was because it was all about me. And I left that meeting and I thought, well, I felt a little better. I'll go again. And so I started going to um, 90 meetings in 90 days. Only because he said that's what they told him to do. And I thought, well, you're not getting ahead of me because if I'm leaving anyway. And remember Oprah. So I did my 90 meetings in 90 days. I remember one Friday night I went to a meeting and uh, Mike was doing a lot of meetings, too. And we weren't seeing a lot of each other those first couple years and. Sat down in the meeting. The meeting started and the chairperson said, does anybody have an Al-Anon topic that they'd like to bring up tonight? (laughs) I said, yes, I do. He is not here. He's always at meetings. He's always driving people to meetings. You know, meetings, AA, meetings, AA, meetings, AA. Wah, 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 wah. And after I inhaled, the woman interrupted me and she said, are you the least bit grateful that he's sober today? Stop me cold. Of course, what I wanted to say was, yes, but. But I'd been around just long enough to say, yes, I'm grateful that he's sober today. Gratitude's been an important part of my recovery since my first days in the program. I believe for me the two most important tools that keep me serene every day are gratitude and acceptance. And I keep learning lessons about them. So in my recovery journey, because I know I'm all that's between you and lunch. (laughs) I told Chuck to leave at quarter till and get my sandwich. And so uh, no, I'm just teasing. Recovery has given me a lot of opportunity to learn about the layers of gratitude and the layers of acceptance and tools that I can use to help me stay serene, not only with the alcoholic in my life, but with coworkers, with family, people who still continue to use the 12 items or less lane, people who still leave their newspaper on the bus and people who check in line in front of me at restaurants. When I practice the principles of the program, that stuff doesn't bother me. When I don't, it gets on my last nerve. So one of the first lessons that I learned in the program was the gift of choice. I did not know 
that I had choices. I had been running in survival mode for so long that I didn't know I had choices. I remember once we were down on a river in in a little fishing boat that he had, and we had pulled off to a marina. And I'm sitting there in the boat, and Mike went into the marina to get something, and a couple of guys were fishermen were up the top, and they looked down, and they said, Ma'am, your boat's sinking. Get out of the boat. And I looked up at him, and I said, I know, I know. Mike comes back, and he says, Pauline, get out of the boat. The boat's sinking. And I look up, and I said, I know, I know. Here's what my thinking said. If I get out of the boat, I'm going to get yelled at. If I stay in the boat, I'm going to get yelled at. I'd rather just go down with the sinking ship. That's just where my head and heart were. I just, I didn't know I had choices to take care of me. So I learned to make choices. And one of the first choices that I learned to make was to get a sponsor in the program. I chose a sponsor not because she had the same experience as me or anything like that. I chose her because I liked her recovery. She became my sponsor and took me through the steps. And one of the things that we learned that I learned about myself in in step one was I didn't see him drink. I tried going to the bar and drinking with him. We went through a period of time where I thought if you can't beat him, join him. That didn't work because I was watching how all of you drank as well. Drove me nuts. (laughs) So I learned that um, I did not, powerless over alcohol did not mean that I had to see somebody drinking. I didn't see him drink. Yet the family disease of alcoholism, cunning, baffling, and powerful, got into my heart. Thus, I'd pick up the obsession. I'm pretty much like an octopus as I go through life. You know, an octopus has tentacles. And as I go through life and I see something that happens, my tentacles wrap right around you. Sometimes if I'm spiritually fit, because I'll see you and I'll go, oh, that needs to be fixed. I'll fix it. There's my tentacle. If I'm spiritually fit, those tentacles unwrap. On days when they don't, they wrap tight and you start to feel the squeeze. So today, even through life, I consider myself an octopus just kind of swimming through, trying to pay attention to not enough that if my tentacle goes out, that I stop and practice the steps of the program before I wrap it too tight. I had to learn how to let go. I did not know how to do that. And that meant for me using the Al-Anon slogans that we got most of them from AA. How important is it? Let go, let God. Live and let learn. One day at a time. Easy does it. That kind of stuff, simple as it is, helps me let go. A few years later in the program, um, I had an opportunity. A work schedule got jammed up. And I couldn't get to my regular set of meetings. And I was working a shift that thrown my sleep cycle off. And I was just a hot mess. And... Um, Here's what happens when I make wrong choices, when I don't get to meetings. I'm in a large, big box bookstore. And I'm too cheap to buy the book on Feng Shui, so I'm standing there reading the book. And I see a carton of calendars over there, and the woman's sifting through the calendars, and the box of calendars falls over. She leaves the scene of the crime. (laughs) 
I dogtail the page on the book that I'm too cheap to buy. I close it up and pull it out just a bit so I can easily access it when I return. I raise myself to all six one and I go stalking the woman. I find her in the big bookstore and I said to her, just a few moments ago, you knocked over a box of calendars. They're laying all over the floor. If you return with me, I'll help you clean them up. She totters behind me. I only know because I'm checking and giving her the self-righteous smile of come along now, come along. She gets over to the calendars and I duck down and begin to put them in the box. And I notice she's not helping. Well, I look up at her and I say, ma'am, you knocked over this box of calendars. If everyone would take responsibility for their mistakes What a wonderful world we'd live in. Now, would you like to help me clean up your mess? And she ducks down, puts the calendars in the box, and off she goes. And this is in recovery. I go back to that little book. I pull it out, open the page, and all of a sudden I go, Holy Lord, Pauline, who died and made you the queen of the big box store? Just who do you think you are? You need to make amends. So now I'm racing through the store. (laughs) Poor Mike is standing at the front going, what's going on? And I'm like, I got to make amends. I got to make amends. And then I couldn't find the woman. And I said, come on, we're going to go to Walmart. He said, why are we going to go to Walmart? I said, I am going to greet people at the front of the store. He's like, they already pay someone to do that. I said, I know, but I need to do something to make amends. I need to get out of the bad behavior. I need to do something right and good and kind and courteous, not old behavior. I got to choose a higher power whom I choose to call God. My higher power had been Marlena Evans from Days of Our Lives. (laughs) That's who I modeled my life after. But in the rooms of Al-Anon, I began to learn how a person can define for themselves who their higher power is. And that gave me a tremendous sense of freedom. Even though I was brought up in a wonderful religion, I needed that sense of freedom to be able to go out and look and then figure out what was comfortable for me. Other gifts that I've gotten from the program is um, the gift of nurturing. In 2002, Mike's mom and my mom were both sick at the same time. We lost both of them in the same year. Tough year. When his mom died, his mom and I were great buddies. I I loved his mom dearly. And when she passed away, I was the person who was there when she passed away. And I felt enormously blessed to get to help someone transition. I'd stroke her hair put lotion on her. She had Alzheimer's. We laughed. Whatever story she told, um, I'd go down the path with her. I learned to keep my head with my feet. If you're an Al-Anon like me, my head was usually thinking way the heck down there. But I got to learn in that experience the power of being the hands of a higher power right there loving on, on Mike's mom. In September of that year, this is an interesting story. In September of that year, 
I, like Chris, was the voice of the Al-Anon Convention in northern Kentucky. And um, the very day the convention started, my mom got put into hospice. So I said to the convention folks, you know, got this convention thing. Um, I'm going to do it. My family, I have brothers and sisters. So they were all taken care of, of my mom. And I'm the voice of the convention. And I made my little announcements and Saturday morning and walked out into the crowd. And a woman walks up to me and, and I hadn't shared with anybody other than a few people at the convention committee what was going on. And a woman walks up to me and she says, um, hi, I'm from Canada. And um, I saw the ad for this convention this weekend, so I decided to come. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Glad you're here. Hope you have a good time kind of things. And she said, "Um, I can't tell you why, but I'm compelled to share something with you. And I said, okay. I thought she was going to give feedback on the conference. And she says, I wrote a book about grieving the loss of members of your family. I brought a copy with me, and I feel compelled to give it to you. Is my God good or what? Delivers on time, even when I didn't ask. I didn't say out loud, I need help. But my God knew that I did, and I got that book. A couple months later in November, Thanksgiving actually, my mom took a Downward slide, and um, Thanksgiving morning, I'm home in bed sleeping. I had taken the all-night shift with Mom. The phone rings, and it's a person from Atlanta, Georgia. And he's calling me, asking me to come give a talk that weekend. Somebody had, had backed out, and would I drive down and, and give a talk? And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll have to take a rain check. I, I really can't. My mom is in hospice. They don't think she'll last much longer. And he said, huh, last night we were at the nursing home with my mother-in-law because she's in hospice and getting ready to pass. Want to talk? God delivers on time, every time. And so that man whom I've never met, he and I had the language of the heart about losing someone we love. My God is so good, and I hope yours is, too. Actually, I know yours is, too. What I have to do is get out of the way of my higher power. Still a constant struggle for me. When I lost my job, I had worried out in fear. How am I going to find a job? I've got to support, you know, blah, 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 blah. And someone from an AA group gave me a little rock that had the word believe on it. That's all it said. And she said, here, you need this rock. And every day I'd put that rock, I had it on my kitchen table, and when I'd enjoy my morning cup of tea, I'd think to myself, what is it my higher power wants me to do today? Well, I need to do the things, take the actions to find a job, but then what I need to do is go out and enjoy life. That's what my higher power wants me to do, is do the footwork and live. Not do the footwork and live in worry, doubt, and fear. Footwork and live. And so I did. I enjoyed the heck out of being off for a little bit. And then my higher power arranged for me to get three job offers in the same day. Just because I chose 
to do the footwork and take the action and make the choices to put the program of Al-Anon into practice. Two years ago, I'm sitting at work and I get a phone call in the morning. It's Mike. He says, honey, I think I'm having a heart attack. I'm driving myself to the hospital. I did have a pre-Al-Anon thought then. I didn't share it. But I got off the phone and uh, drove to the hospital, and I'm sitting in the hospital waiting for them to decide what they're going to do with his heart. And I'm a little weepy, a little scared, as a person would be when someone you love is under duress. And I'm sitting there just, you know, like, geez, what do I do? Who do I call? You know, you know how your mind races. And a woman comes out. She sits down right by me and she says, I know you. And I'm think what I'm thinking to myself is not now. I have got a lot to worry about right now. I have got a lot on my mind. I do not want to be nice. That is what I'm thinking. She says, I sat in a meeting with you, one of those meetings, you know, Al, uh, I said, Al-Anon. She said, yeah, I sat in an Al-Anon meeting with you for a year, and all I ever did was cry, and all you ever did was hug me and love me. I just wanted to come out here since I recognized you, and thank you for that. Wow. That was a higher power's perfect delivery. Because in that quick, from what she said, here's the message that I took. Pauline, I got this. Here's an opportunity for you to be of service, to be kind, courteous, and loving. Let me have it. Don't worry. Accept. And then I was perfectly fine. Whatever they told me, I I was prepared. I was comfortable in whichever way it went. And they did come out and gave me, you know, the good, bad, and the worst uh, scenarios. Luckily, he's here today, and I'm very, very grateful. So the program of Al-Anon has given me tons and tons of gifts. But it's only been by my taking the time to put the program into practice and by doing service work. I'm very involved in service work and have been since I got there. I started being a GR within uh, a few months of coming into the program in 1992. I've served at the area level, district Group level, I do a lot of different stuff. And a shout out for Alatine, because I'm an Alatine sponsor. And for those of you who don't know what Alatine is, Alatine is a younger version of Al-Anon for teenagers 13 through 18 who loves someone who drinks. So my life has changed. When I came into the program, I thought that my job was to change his life and your life. Because after all, I know best. What I know now is the best that I can do is be open to the opportunity that a higher power gives me to change my life today. My life has changed because you were here today. My sincere thanks to each and every one of you. God bless.